Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today we are in our fifth part of our series on the temptations of Christ with James Jordan, and here he moves into the Gospel of Matthew, gives a bit of a theology of what these temptations of Christ are, and shows how they still apply to us today. Do remember this lecture is a few decades old, so some of the references will be outdated, but we still think that the application and the way that Jim is thinking about these temptations and how they apply will be really beneficial to you. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching, and we thank you for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the Gospel of Matthew and the temptation of Christ. And we've used our discussions of the temptation of Christ to go back and consider the fall of man and what it entailed. And today we'll return now finally to Matthew chapter 4, and I'd like for you to turn there, and we'll begin reading with the last verse of chapter 3, Matthew 3:17. 3, uh, and this is after Christ Jesus was baptized, after Jesus was baptized, and in a sense at that point, point becomes the Christ, the anointed one. Behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, in in Luke, at that point, you have the insertion of a genealogy which traces Christ all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. And so, being God's Son or being the Son of God is a definition of what humanity is, to be in the image and likeness of God or to be a Son of God. And so, Christ here is anointed to be the second Adam, And then it says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, Since you are the Son of God, remember, that's really the best way to translate that. Since God has said you're the Son of God, so now, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you're really a second Adam, if you're really the friend of man, if you're really the Savior of the world, then give man bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, lest you and there on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said, to the, and said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, all three of the things that Satan tempts Jesus with here are part of what he came to do. Did Jesus come to give men bread? Yes. Did Jesus come to rule in the temple, in the holy city, and to demonstrate his power as the Son of God? Yes. Did Jesus come to take all the kingdoms of the world away from the devil and take them back to himself? Yes. So the problem is not, does not lie in the idea that these things are wrong, that it's wrong to have these things or that it's wrong for Jesus to have them. 
The problem lies in the timing and the context in which Jesus takes these things. And that's why we spent three weeks now looking back at the book of Genesis to see what the book of Genesis tells us about the original temptation. And we saw that the faith of Abraham is quintessentially patient faith. God comes to Abraham and says, You will have land and seed, but you must wait. You'll get it when I'm ready to give it to you, and not before. Don't take it under any other circumstances. If they offer it, if the king of Sodom comes and offers it to you, don't take it from him. If the Hittites come and offer a burial plot for you and your wife, don't take it from them. Use the money I've given you to pay for it, but do not take anything from them. You must wait. You're going to have to wait 400 years. It's yours, but you can't have it yet. True faith is patient faith. It waits. The same thing was true we saw in Adam and Eve. And we can very quickly look back there. In Genesis 2, verse 16, on the sixth day in the morning, or perhaps in the afternoon, the Lord God says to Adam, the man, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. There's the two witnesses in Hebrew, dying you shall die. Now later on in the day, after the woman has been made, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God says to the man and the woman, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So, Adam and Eve now know that the prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is only temporary. It's not that they're never going to get a chance, to, that they're never going to get to eat this food, but that they have to wait. The, there is a temporary period of time during which they can't eat it. Moreover, another parallel between the temptations of Christ is that, that there was really nothing wrong with this food. The woman noticed in Genesis 3, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Is that not true? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. It's deliberately repeated. When she saw that it was pleasing to the sight, she was right. When she saw that it was good for food, she was right. The problem was she wasn't supposed to eat it then. She was supposed to wait till God was ready. When she thought that it would magically and instantaneously make her wise, she was wrong. Now this happens right at the beginning of Adam and Eve's life, and I have said, and I could defend this, but I can't take the time in Sunday school to do it, that there was a period of time during which Adam and Eve were supposed to wait, and after that period of time they would have been given the right to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this would have given them the robe of office. They were naked. They weren't supposed to clothe themselves. They were supposed to wait for God to give them the garments of glory and office. God was clothed with glory, and they were the image of God, and in time they knew that they would be clothed with glory and office, and they would become the kings and queens of the world. But they weren't ready for it yet. They were supposed to wait for what I call the probationary 40. The probationary 40. And if we look in the Bible, we see always that God will set before people something, and then he'll tell them to wait. And the wait is always a period of 40, 40 days, 40 years, or some multiple of 40. <clears throat> For instance, before the flood, in Genesis 6, verse 3, God came to Noah and said, Man has 120 years to repent. That's three times 40. At the end of that time, I'm going to act. 
But man is not yet matured to the fullness of his evil. When he matures, when the evil of his youth becomes the evil of his old age, as we saw earlier, then I will judge the world, but not till then. And there are three times forty periods, and then I will judge the world. In Genesis 9, verse 6, when God comes to Noah and says, Now, after the flood, I am ready to bestow upon you the robe of office. From now on, if a man kills another man, you have the robe of executing capital punishment. You are now the judge of the world. And remember, we saw how Ham tries to steal that. But this happens 1,657 years after the creation. And what is that? In terms of the way the Hebrews would have looked at that number, it's 33 jubilees, 33 times 50, plus 7 years. And you can add 33 and 7, and you see it comes out to 40. And that's not a coincidence. If we look at uh, Genesis chapter 15, we find that God tells Abram, I'm going to give you this land, but you're going to have to wait 400 years. What's that but 10 times 40? If we look at Moses, we find that God sets before Moses the vision of delivering the people. And according to the book of Acts, when Moses kills the Egyptian, he did so in faith, believing that God was going to deliver Israel. So it was, in a sense, a righteous act on Moses' part, but it was premature. And God takes Moses out and makes him wait 40 years until he is mature and ready to execute this office. He wasn't ready at the age of 40. He was ready at the age of 80. When Israel comes out of Egypt, God says, go take the promised land, but they weren't ready to do so. So how long do they have to wait until they're mature? Forty years in the wilderness, and then the nation is mature to come in. When God took Moses up on the mountain to receive the law, how many days was Moses up there? Forty days. And what happened to Israel? They were given a temptation. And what did they do? They made a golden calf and fell into the sin. All these things repeat. They were supposed to wait for God to give the law, but they wouldn't wait. They said, "We've got to have, we've got to have something right now." As the what was it? The Athen was it the Greeks who used to say, Persians who used to say, "We are men and we must have laws." That's true. And the Israelites said, "We are men and we must have gods." And since we don't know what's happened to this God, we're not going to wait 40 days. We're not going to walk by faith for 40 days. We're going to build a calf. The probationary 40. When God took the people into the land, he said, you will have dominion all the way to the Euphrates River, but they didn't have it all, and they didn't exercise it all, and they had to wait in a certain period of time until their great king came, the great and glorious King Solomon. How many years? According to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, 480 years, which is 12 times 40. If you know the numbers of the Bible, you know these things are significant. How many years is it from creation of the world until the birth of Christ? Plus or minus 4,000 years, 100 times 40. How many days was it after Jesus was resurrected from the dead until he ascended and sat down at God's right hand? 40 days. Probationary 40. 40 is a period of time you have to wait. You pass the test and you've acquired maturity and wisdom, and then God lets you have an increase in glory. And there are lots of stages of this, you see. It's not just, it's not just going from being naked to having a garment. You can go from being naked to having one garment after 40 days and then a decoration on the garment after another 40 days and another decoration after another 40 days. And man moves, as the book of Romans says, from glory to glory, from dominion to dominion. Those who are faithful in small things get put over bigger things, and then they get put over bigger things, and then over bigger things. 
There are elders over tens, and if they mature, they become elders over fifties, and if they mature, they become elders over hundreds, thousands, myriads. There are degrees. But in every case, there's the principle of waiting and maturing until you're ready. Now, the interesting thing here is, Satan comes to Jesus after the 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus has become hungry. And Satan says, and we, in the context of the Bible as a whole, we can now fill in some of this. Okay, you've passed the test. So, you've passed the test, you've waited 40 days, now you're ready to take on the robe of office. You're ready to become the Messiah. You're ready to be the Son of God and rule the world. And we can say, I believe honestly, that yes, Jesus could have done so. As the second Adam, he has passed the test, he can take on the robe, and he can now be king alone because the rest of humanity has fallen. And Christ could have become king as the second Adam. Right then and there, it would have been entirely logical in terms of the logic of biblical principles and redemptive history for him to become king, having passed the test, having matured in wisdom, to take on the office of authority and to rule over the kingdoms of the world. But suppose he had done so. What would he have had to do as king? Judge every single person in the world and cast them all into hell because nobody was saved, nobody was redeemed. And as king, he would have been king alone. He would have been the sole righteous person in the world. So, Jesus has to defer. He has to say, no, I came here to save men, and I must die for men. And it's precisely as the man who has earned the right to these things that I will now give it up as a substitute. And it's because Christ has earned the robe of office and dies as our substitute that it can fall to us. It's precisely because he wears that robe at the cross and is stripped off that it can be given to us. It's a substitutionary idea. And so he must go through the cross and die and be resurrected before he receives these things. But Satan comes and says, no, take them now in the natural order of things. And that's what Christ has to resist. Now, there's a sense in which that's unique to him. You and I can't die for anybody else's sins. But there's another sense in which the principles are common to us because we are in union with Christ. And the temptations that come to him to turn stones into bread, to cast himself down from the temple and trust that he won't dash his foot against a stone, uh, the temptation to seize the world, these temptations still come to us, particularly those of us that are genuinely orthodox Christian Reconstructionist types. We know enough theology to where these temptations are real and not artificial. After all, if we were Siderites, uh, the temptation to take over the world wouldn't be any temptation because Siderites don't believe in taking over the world. So it's easy to dismiss that temptation. But we believe in it, see? We believe that Christians are supposed to take over the world. So it's a real temptation to us. Let's look at it. Some of what I'm going to say is going to be controversial for some of you. I hope you'll listen with care to what I'm going to say. I'm trying to make it practical, but whenever you do that, you step on toes or you run the risk of it. Let's look at the first temptation. <clears throat> Since you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus answered and said, it's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let's look at that one. What did Eve say when she saw the tree? She said it was good for food. Was it good for food? Sure, you bet it was good for food. And did Jesus come to give bread to men? 
Of course. We see him feeding the 5,000. We see him feeding the 4,000. We see him giving us bread and wine every week at the Lord's Supper. Not only that, but we can make an analogy. The Bible makes an analogy between stones and bread and people. And Jesus says, I'm going to turn these stones into sons of Abraham. And the Bible compares true Christians as, pe- as pieces of bread. That's one of the meanings of the Lord's Supper is that we have fellowship with one another because we are all grains in the bread. Well, Jesus came to turn stones into men, to turn stones into bread. Yes, indeed, that's why he came. Bread is good. That's the answer. Sure, Satan, bread is good, but only on God's terms, not by itself. Only in God's time, not whenever you want it. The problem, if we can make a general statement, is the temptation to grab hold of God's good gifts in an unlawful manner. There are all kinds of good gifts out there, and we can grab for them in an unlawful manner. In a way that God says, no, you can't have it that way, you have to wait. So let's take some examples. The first easy example for all of us is socialism. Socialism, in its various pseudo-Christian forms, says, yes, give men bread. We can give them the gospel later. Uh, now, there's a tendency for us to take the gospel without bread, but Jesus always takes the gospel and bread together. That's part of the meaning of the sacrament. It, uh, the word comes with the food. And even though the, the sacrament is symbolic, yet it is real food, and that's as, an, an aspect of it. We take food to the poor. But socialism is the temptation to give men gifts without giving them the word of God, without preaching to them, without forcing them to repent and come into the church in order to receive these things. I don't think we need to expand on that in our context. We all know that that's problematic. Let's take another example. And I think this is real. It's real to me. And this isn't something that the Bible teaches, but I think it's a good application. Have you ever noticed how when you sit down to dinner at night, we all know that we're supposed to pray before we eat. But what do most of us do when we sit down at the dinner table? We take one thing and put it in our mouth and chew on it while we wait. How many of you do that? Don't raise your hands. I do it. You're sitting there at the restaurant and they bring out these chips, you see. And you figure, well, we'll pray when they bring out the stuff that comes out of the microwave. You ever notice how hot the food is? It's because they microwave it. But you eat the chip. Or maybe you're just kind of waiting to pray and everybody eats one chip. It'd be better not to do that. See, just as a discipline of life, it would be better, and uh, I wish I would, I I need to be more careful with my children on this. They sit down and they pick up their knife and fork and they stick something in their mouth and they don't eat a whole lot before we pray, but it's sloppy, see. Now, is the world going to fall apart on the basis of this? Is the Bible really explicit about it? No, but you see, little disciplines like that are ways to inculcate these principles into our lives. I suggest, just as a little discipline, that we all be real careful not to snack before we pray when we sit down to eat and train our children the same. There's a real virtue in postponing enjoying the good things of life until they have the word with them. Now, because this has to do with the good things of life, and because as theonomic reconstructionists, we believe in the good things of life, and that has to do with money, the applications that I'm going to make this morning have to do with money. And I want to talk just a little bit about tithing and taxes and debt, all of which are controversial. And I'm not going to talk about what the Bible says in the way of law on these things, but just about our attitudes the attitudes that we can have. 
because the proper attitude involved is an attitude of waiting. And that's what we tend not to do. We tend to want to have things now. And that affects our tithing, our tithing. The Bible says, if you have a herd of sheep, you tithe on all the new ones you get, which is your business. It doesn't say tithe on the ones you take out to eat. It doesn't say distinguish between wages and income. It doesn't say all these things that people come up with to get around tithing. The basic principle is that if we nickel and dime it with God, God will nickel and dime it with us. But the more important principle is we need to put God and his work first. We spent some time in the book of Haggai a year ago, and what did we see there? God says, you earn money and it goes into a purse full of holes. You make bad mistakes. The, the crops don't grow. Other things happen and you lose your money. Why? Because you've built your houses before you've built mine. And this is an attitude thing. is more than it is anything else. Because in our modern, complicated society, it's not always easy to be able to tell somebody exactly how they ought to tithe. If you have a business, do you tithe on all the money that comes in? Obviously not. You've got to pay your bills first. How about advertising? In modern business, advertising is absolutely necessary. Sears would close if they didn't advertise. So would any other store. So advertising is a necessary expense, but advertising can also expand your business. So some of the money that goes into advertising is part of your necessary business expense, and part of the money that goes into your advertising is expansion, and you ought to tithe on that before you use it. Tithe on money before you use it for anything new, for any expansion or capital increase, or buying a car, or buying a house, or anything like that. But drawing these lines is not always easy, and I can't stand up here and tell each of you what to do, but I can talk about attitudes. And the attitude problem is wanting the bread before God is ready, or wanting more than God says we can have right now, and just subtly figuring out ways to keep hold of our money. Taxes, the same thing. Woe be unto me if I talk about taxes. But I will very briefly point out a couple of things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. The Bible has a lot to say about taxes, and all of it is to the effect that you pay. There is nothing in the Bible about not paying taxes. The problem for us is that these things are all set in the context of absolute tyranny. If they come and compel you to pay this tax, then you pay it. So what about our situation today? It's slightly gray. And because it's slightly gray, then we can differ among ourselves as to what we think ought to be done. The general teaching, though, is quite clear. And that is that God's got a lot of fish in the ocean, and in those fish are gold coins. And you can afford to pay and not worry about it. Because the fish are there in the sea of creation, and they have gold coins in their mouths. Those who work and are faithful will not suffer from paying their taxes. It's not the money, but the mentality that each of us has to be careful with, whether we are choosing one side or the other of this particular issue. Am I reinforcing a faithful mentality... Or am I reinforcing a mentality that says this is mine and nobody else can have it? Is it yours? Or is it on loan to you? That's the question. It's an attitude question. Command these stones become bread. No, not right now. I'm not ready for that. God says you can't have it right now. You have to wait. 
God says, I'm giving you $30,000, but you've got to give $3,000 of it to me, and the state's going to come in and plunder another hunk of it, and this, that, and the other. Well, that's, then God didn't give you all that much. We have to think about these things and let each one of us be sure that he is not developing in himself subtly over the course of time an attitude of grasping at things before God is ready to give them. How about debt living? I mentioned this before, but it's a good place to, re- to refresh our minds on it. It's very easy for those of us that are young, and, and most of us are in the category of young. Uh, that is, we're not yet 70 years old, and uh, we're still young. And it's easy to look around at how people live on TV or how people live in Tyler and say, I'd like to have all those nice things. And it's real easy to get all those nice things. You can use a credit card and get them. But then you're in way into debt, see? And we have a real problem in America today of young people wanting to live like people who have spent years and years earning these things. They didn't start off with a nice house and a house full of nice furniture in the living room and real nice bed and nice car and all these nice things. Our parents got those nice things that are in their houses now generally one at a time. And they started off with junk and they got nice things one at a time over the years. That's the way people used to do it. Now what people do is they go and borrow $6,000 and they get a whole house full of nice things when they're 20. And then they're in debt. And the, the problem is not so much the money. You can get caught and it may not be smart to do that because if God brings a problem into your life and you can't pay off your credit cards, then you're in real trouble. You get a bad credit reference. All kinds of bad things happen, but you know about those things. The more basic problem I think that's addressed here and that I'd like to address is that you build into your mind, you build into your life a mentality of always wanting things at the beginning instead of waiting until the end to get them. And that's where the main problem comes, I think, in this passage and in the temptation to Adam and Eve. Yes, God says to Adam and Eve, you can have these things, but you've got to wait till I'm ready to give them to you. That's faith. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, okay, you can have these things now, so why don't you take them? And Jesus says, the word says I can't have these things yet. I don't live on bread alone. I do live on bread. But I can't eat bread right this minute. I have to wait because the word that proceeds from the mouth of God tells me that it's not time just yet. Let each of us take these things to heart and think about them. Uh, We may get through this today. Let's look at the second temptation. Then the devil took him into the holy city and stood him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, or again, it is written, You shall not test the Lord your God. What did Eve say when she looked at the tree? She said it was a delight to the eyes. It was attractive to look at. It wasn't awful to look at. According to Isaiah 53, Jesus had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. So a little bit of a contrast there, and we'll expand on it. What does it mean, a delight to the eyes, in Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, we already know because God saw what he had made, and it was good. The eyes are for witnessing. That's why you have two of them. If you take one eye out, you don't have any perspective. You ever notice that? I'm sure you have. Everything's flat before you. And it's not always necessarily easy to tell what's in front of something else. I'm sure you've had tricks played on you like that. 
But with two eyes, you can see depth and you can see perspective. That's the way God has made us. Two ears as well. With two ears, you can hear how far away something is. If you only had one ear, you couldn't hear distance. And these are ways we give bear witness to things. And God, it says, has eyes that run to and fro in the earth, evaluating men. And he sends his two witnesses into Sodom to make an evaluation of it. And that's how God makes a witness. And on the basis of his witness, he passes a judgment. The eyes, the seeing is the witness. And on the basis of that, God pronounces things good or evil. God saw that the man was alone and said, it is not good for the man to be alone. God sees. Now, God's eyes test. According to Psalm 11:4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His, eyelids be, his eyes behold. His eyelids test the son of, sons of men. Now, if you're testing something, you close your eyes a little bit. Squint a little bit. You're testing something out. That's what happens to the eyes. His eyelids test the sons of men. God tests man. Man does not test God. Why? Because it's the superior who always tests the inferior. For man to put God to the test is for man to make himself superior over God. What is the temptation here? The temptation is to do something that appeals to the eyes of man. That is, to rule by sight and not by miracle. It takes place in the holy city and at the pinnacle of the temple, at the highest and most visible point. This is something everybody would see casting himself down. And it's right at the throne of God where worship is conducted. And, God's, and Satan says, do something to test God, prove him that man can see and that man can use to test God. The answer, man does not test God, ever. Now, in Malachi chapter 3, there is a time when man is called upon to test God in certain things where God says, you can test me. Malachi 3 says in verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there's no more need. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you'll be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Test me now in this. Yeah, we can, there's a sense in which God encourages us to tithe, and he says, tithe and see what happens, okay? But that's not the context here. This is the ultimate test. Within the covenant, <clears throat> we are God's friends, and we can relate to him by prayer. He calls on us to give him advice as his counselors, and we do that by prayer, as we saw last time. But we never test God and make him come to our standard. See, what Malachi, what God encourages through Malachi, is just a way of checking out God's standard. The context here is the throne of God, the church, and worship. And the temptation is to set forth the gospel and the rule of God in such a way as to make it attractive to the eye of man. Attractive to sinful man. And this comes up later on in the Gospels at a number of places. I'll just read to you very quickly. Luke 11, verse 16, it says, And others, testing him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. And in verse 29, 
Jesus said, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah, well, we don't have time to go into. Similarly, in Revelation chapter 13, it's said to be the essence of false religion. In Revelation 13, 11 to 14, I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell on it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Uh, I think the fatal wound was the fact that uh, Paul initially converted many in Caesar's household. And so Caesar's head was wounded by the preaching of the gospel. But then, apparently, uh, these were all driven out. Caesar became a great enemy. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven to earth in the presence of men, just like Elijah. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. So, false religion, lots of signs, miracles. Does God use miracles? Yes, certainly. But if we look only at the miracles and have a religion of sight and not of faith, then we fall into the trap here. What are some examples of how we fall into this trap? Well, generally speaking, and again, we don't have to elaborate on this, first of all, in apologetics, the temptation to try to persuade men to believe on their own terms. Look at all these proofs of the resurrection. Well, there aren't any proofs of the resurrection that are going to satisfy the natural man. After all, Krishna was raised from the dead, and so were all kinds of other people in the history of the world, and other religions. There's nothing unique in Christianity about a man coming back from the dead. Men already know God, and so they don't need proofs. All men know God. doesn't mean there's no place for apologetics or argument, but it does mean that we have to be very careful, as Van Tillis taught us, not to go to the natural man and appeal to him to convert on his own terms, because what if he does? Then when the son of tribulation and affliction comes up, he falls away. Because all he ever did was just believe because somebody persuaded him. And when he gets rough, then he's not persuaded anymore. Another thing that we need to watch out for that this addresses, I think, is the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement has got lots of different facets to it, and I can't condemn it entirely or say that there's no work of God anywhere present in it. I'm not saying that. But by and large... The charismatic movement is characterized by people looking for signs and miracles. They want something wonderful. And their attitude and mentality is, oh, wow, man, look at this neat thing that just happened over here. My car floated through the air. Or demons were cast out. Well, the devil can cast out demons. You might be surprised at that, but it says in Matthew chapter 7, many will come and say, well, let's look at it. It's a description of Pentecostalism. To a certain extent, in Matthew 7, many will come on that day and say, Lord, Lord, hallelujah, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform miracles? That's a kind of religion, casting out demons, performing miracles, prophesying. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. The sine qua non, the essential thing in true religion is obedience to the law of God. Not all these other things. They may be there or they may not be there. But they're not the important thing. A religion of sight. Dangerous. Uh, questionable. It's not a problem in our church, but it certainly is a problem nationwide. I think maybe for us, as Christian Reconstructionists, our temptation is to avoid the offense of the cross. 
That may seem a strange thing. But let's look at what it says. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Did Jesus come to cast himself out from the temple? Yeah, he did. He threw himself out, outside the city, outside the temple. For it is written, and this is a guarantee, the angels will take the hands, remember the hands are under the wings, the hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Oh, did Jesus strike his foot against a stone? Yeah. Heel is bruised, right? Angels did not bear him up when he cast himself out. And his foot was bruised. In fact, God didn't bear him up. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And his foot was bruised. Now what does that mean? Now we, we readily grant that for Jesus Christ, he suffered on our behalf. And we readily grant that his foot was bruised, and we take the offense of the cross in that sense. But there is a tendency to minimize the weakness and suffering of the church. We're so glory and dominion oriented, we want to appear strong and glorious. And we forget that in Jesus Christ, our heel is always bruised. Just as when Jacob fought with the angel and his, his leg was wounded, and Israel always had a wounded leg, so that the nation of Israel never ate that part of the meat because it was bruised, that is, there was blood in it. It was the bruising of the heel. Remember that scene in, in Genesis? Jacob is going across the boundary river into the promised land. The sun is coming up behind him. And just a symbol of the kingdom of God ascending in the world. And it says he's limping. The church always limps. It always will. It's going to limp during the latter day glory. There will always be a thorn in the flesh. There will always be a bruised heel because God's power is perfected in weakness. And I think as theonomists, we tend to downplay that a little bit. We don't have a whole lot of theology of suffering. Because we look at the other side out there, the side of rights, these other people, and all they want to talk about is suffering. Suffer, 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 as if our suffering saved the world. So we react. And we want to appear glorious. And yet, the church will always limp. And I guess it's when the church learns to limp properly that the kingdom comes in more of its fullness. But as long as we pretend we're not limping, the, the wound just gets worse. And you know, if you... If you've got a big cut on your foot or something and you're running and jogging and pretending like everything is well, it's just going to beat your foot up worse. Let's stop pretending that everything is well. It's not. We will always limp. Now, that's no excuse for sloppy work. We have to do our best, but the Bible says when we've done our best, we're still unprofitable servants. When we've done our best, it's still through the Holy Spirit that anything is accomplished because our best efforts are really in vain. And our influence does not come through strength, not as the world sees it. And so, in general, I think that that is something of a temptation for us, to fail to see the paradox that glory comes through limping. And we could say just in general that this applies to all of life in a sense that each of us likes to keep up appearances one way or another. And there's such a range of things we could talk about that I won't talk about any of them. I don't want to make any more enemies. But there's a desire to keep up appearances. And that's no excuse for being real sloppy, you know. But each this is motivational, see. So much of this is motivational. You have to know yourself. I can't judge you. I can only judge myself, and I'm required to do that. But to what extent am I keeping up appearances? To what extent am I saying, well, I don't have to keep up appearances. I can be a slob. 
The Bible says you can't be a slob either. You have to work hard. So there's an attitude questionnaire. We ought really to look pretty good, and yet our motivation must be not to keep up appearances, not for the sake of sight. Do we test God? No, we don't dare test God. Because if we test God, we may very well dash our foot against the stone. The general rule is, yeah, I'll bear you up and you won't dash your foot against the stone. What happens when you do? I'm sure you've dashed your feet against stones from time to time. I certainly have. Well, that's uh, God's waking us up. God's waking us up. I don't have time to deal with this last temptation. I guess we'll have to put it off. Maybe that's just as well because it's rather complicated one. But let's just very let's let's conclude the theme that I've tried to develop this morning by noticing the temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain, uh, the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's always a high mountain where you can see everything and exercise dominion, a source of things. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said, "All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me." The question comes: How can Satan ever tempt God to worship him? Seems like an absurd temptation. We'll have to figure out the context of that temptation. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know, the other half of the, the other part of the paradox for us is that dominion is a good thing. But dominion only comes through suffering. Jesus could have had dominion then, but he chose to have it through suffering. That's the context in which this makes sense. You don't have to go to the cross, you know. You can have the kingdoms now. That's why in the book of Luke, where this comes to fuller expression, in Luke chapter 4, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then we read over in Luke 22 about that opportune time. In Luke 22, verse 39... He came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why? Because he's about to enter into temptation. Who tempts? The devil. The devil comes to him in the garden of the Mount of Olives. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray and said, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but thine be done. That tells you what the temptation is. The temptation is not to go through with the cross because it's so horrible. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. We read in Matthew that after the temptations, the angels came and strengthened him. And we could go on. We'll spend more time on this next week. But you see, the only context in which the temptation to worship God makes any sense is that the cross was so horrible that to avoid the cross, it actually might be a temptation to worship the devil. And what that says to us is dominion is a good thing. And the devil comes and says, go ahead and take the dominion. Don't take it through suffering. And yet, just as giving is the key to wealth, and just as weakness is the key to glory, so suffering is the key to dominion. And we as theonomists will tend to lose sight of that. We tend to focus on wealth, and we forget that giving is the key to wealth. We tend to focus on glory... And we tend to forget that weakness is the key to glory. When I am weak, then I am strong. We tend to focus on the kingdoms of the world, and we tend to forget that suffering and even martyrdom is the way in which that dominion is gotten. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.